Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, today, I have the pleasure of having two guests. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, my name's Will Brown. Um, my name is Marie Willie. And together we are Old Town. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> and that's Old Town on the coast of Norfolk. North Norfolk, yes. To be very specific. Oh, um, yes, yes, yes. Is it a town? North Norfolk. Is it a town or uh, a village? Holt, Holt, Holt is um, a Georgian market town. Well, there you go. It's very so, nice. So, for the listeners who don't know Old Town... Could you tell us a bit about the brand? Me? Um, well, we've been, well, we, Will has been designing clothes under the label All Town. Actually, it's 30 years this month that we moved out of London, we moved to Norfolk, and we started All Town. Before that, Will had been making clothes. He was very much part of the Blitz era, not the 1940s Blitz, the 1980s Blitz, um, you know, that style. He had a shop in Rivington Street in Shoreditch in 1980, um, and he was very much involved with that scene, which is where we met, um, Spandau Ballet, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and then in 1992, we were quite fed up with London. I think a lot of people were. I think a lot of people left London. It was a low point, wasn't it? Yeah. London was a, was it was low a bit of a, time. yeah. And we um, were quite into rural. We just had this thing about being more rural rather than urban. And uh, we decided to move to Norfolk and we opened Old Town. Although when we opened it, we didn't sell clothes. We had a shop, which I can only describe as selling stuff. It was, um, <laughs> it's become quite a thing now, a sort of a style thing. It was, it was things, a lifestyle, wasn't it? Yeah. A, a genre then, was it? Yes, it, 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 was like, it was like lifestyle. I think when I think about it, we, we were becoming aware that things were disappearing, sort of quite practical hardware stuff, brushes, brooms, balls of st the iconic ball of string, kitchen things, and we opened a shop selling those sort of things, which was a complete and utter disaster. It, it couldn't have been more of a disaster. Um, people in Norfolk already had those things in their houses. We thought we'd identified something that was disappearing. It wasn't disappearing in Norfolk. It was disappearing in London. Um, so we very, very quickly had to adapt and think of something to do. Otherwise, we would have literally died a death. Um, and Will decided to come up with this, um, a shirt in a box. It was a work shirt because that was an item that we'd noticed, the sort of basic workwear, where you used to get them from like a hardware shop 
you would always find these funny little shops that sold cotton drill shirts and workwear, basically, you know, proper workwear. And, um, and Will came up with this idea of the box, which we still have, the box we send out our orders. You know, when you order something, you get it in a lovely box. And um, so we did a work shirt in a box and then introduced more things very, very small range, really small, maybe six or eight items. This is obviously this is pre-internet days. Yes, and we figured that you could actually get publicity by sending in a transparency of something to to the sort of Sunday magazines, and chances are they'd use it. So, we having worked in magazines, we we knew that was the route to getting some sort of promotion, so that we could survive with the business in a very out-of-the-way provincial right. town. That's right, and that's how the mail order started, um, which was, I remember the first cheque that we got. I could not believe it. It was like, oh, my God, we can, we can have a business doing mail order, sending things out in the post. It was completely, it was just like... I'm not going to say the light bulb moment, but I just did. Um, it literally was the light bulb moment. We thought, ah, that's what we need to do. We need to get publicity and we can start sending stuff out. I think pretty soon after that, we were on the clothes show television program. We didn't have a catalogue. We'll run off a few sheets of paper um, at the pronto print i think yeah, and stapled very, them yeah. together because after the television program the phone just went absolutely berserk we had nothing to send out anyway that was you know yonks ago when it was literally it was you had to have a printed catalog and i mean we've done loads of catalogs over the years um and that's pretty much how it started um I think right now I'd like to put a pin in where we are. Oh well, God! And, and it, sort of just you. <laughs> just sort of loop back a bit because you mentioned yes. you'd been in magazines, but Will, you'd been making clothes for the Blitzing, which sounds to me like the new romantics. I'd, I'd yes, think of them I, as, I suppose it was, which must yes. be a mile apart from what you're doing now. Well, not oh, was it? A, it still feels the same to me. Um, well, funnily enough. Will found a book, uh, one of our friend's daughters, who's 13, 13, and at school, she was shown us pictures on the computer of Bauhaus-designed outfits. And and I said to Will, oh, my God, that's where you came in. And then Will's got this book at home, Russian constructivist, very geometric shapes, gave the book to Tegan. And her very first comment was, I don't think your things have hardly changed. You've stuck to your style. I thought, my God, that's quite amazing. She can detect from that book of Russian constructivist. She thought it was quite similar to what we do. Right. I, I'm I just thinking Spando Bally with their fluffy arms and. <laughs> well, it was it was various. It was a lot of. Yeah, um, that wasn't. It was a very yeah. broad church, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't the ruffles. It right. was more cotton drill, quite geometric. So the constructivist, constructivist, sort of Russian inspired. Yeah. Um, 
but then they were a raft of sort of ecclesiastical style sort of <laughs> Arabian Nights sort of fantasies, wasn't it? I mean, there was a lot of stuff going mm. on. That's why um, when my in my email to you when I said um, it used to be more fun, and that's what I mean. It was absolutely wall to wall, end to end fun, and that was about. The clothes, it was just absolutely brilliant. It was just about getting dressed up and going out. But, but everyone knew it was bizarre, didn't they? Yeah. It was like a wheeze. It was a and, wheeze. You know, at the end of the night, you'd see this guy dressed up as an Arab sheikh getting into his hatchback car and driving out to Essex at the end of the <laughs> you know, It was just nuts, wasn't it? <laughs> but those people, I mean, when it probably boiled down to a couple of hundred people. You'd see the same people week after week at the Blitz, Club for Heroes, various different places. And, you know, I don't know about the rest of the country, but it was quite a small little group of people. I think a certain um, person sort of gravitated to that scene. Expressing themselves, art students, you know, there was a whole... Hairdressers. Hairdressers. There was a whole group of them lived in a squat in Warren Street um and it was just it was it was it was very very creative it was a very creative time and i don't know about the creativity now it all it's so celebrity driven and i don't know that that fun element i could be completely wrong what do i know i'm coming up to 66 what the hell do i know but i maybe they're absolutely they were fun killing themselves <laughs> laughing somewhere i hope they are i really really do well you know with age comes wisdom and i think once we get <laughs> older and wiser i mean we do see things for what they are <laughs> yes for good or for bad <laughs> definitely so from the glamorous life in London, you leave for Norfolk and you open the shop you should have opened in Shoreditch. Well, <laughs> yeah, that shop only lasted for one year that Will had in Rivington Street, um, partly because that area was completely undiscovered, wasn't it? It was, it was I mean, still was, bomb sites. It was yeah. corrugated iron and blowing newspapers and Budley. I mean, there was, there was nobody there. went up. Absolutely nobody went there, did no. they? It was just utterly, utterly deserted. I mean, it really, do, do you know that area, Shoreditch? Uh, vaguely, yes. Well, I have been. Yeah, it's off. It's it's sort of it runs off Shoreditch High Street. I mean, honestly, if you go there now, I mean, it's absolutely it's it's just heaven, absolutely mm. heaven. Restaurants. Oh, I don't know about after COVID, but you know, it it had become an area much more developed. Um, but at the time when Will had his shop there, it was it was just in one of those areas that, well, loads of places in London that were undiscovered. You know, Bermondsey was the last place we had a workroom in the early nineties. The thing is that when you're when you're younger and you've got no money and you're trying to find a workspace, you have to go to the area that hasn't been developed because they are the cheap areas. And that's pretty much what we've always, you know. So Bermondsey was another undeveloped area. We took a workroom there. That was quite painful, wasn't it? 
nobody moved in. We moved into a, um, a factory, an old uh, factory that was meant to be all going to be lots of people similar to us moving in, little workrooms. It never happened. Never happened. It was the we, recession of the early 90s, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. We were the only ones in there and it was just quite depressing and lonely. And, we, and then at that point we thought, why don't we move? Why don't we just move out of London? But also the things that I was doing, I was still doing a few things for, um, for the Japanese market, but also I was doing stuff for... Um, I had been working at a shop called D-Mob in the 1980s. Then I was sort of working for a shop called Soul to Soul. Um, and then it was moving into sort of rave era. And I was getting on for my mid-30s there, thinking <laughs> I haven't really got much to offer to these young kids, you know. Um, so that's when we decided to make the break mm. and, and do a lifestyle shop in Norwich. Mm. That's, and that's pretty well how it went, I think. Mm. But then moved back to doing the clothes. When they suddenly, when, late in the day, yeah, <laughs> worked, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, a shirt in a box. Yeah. Shirt in a box, yeah. And an expanded range. Where were yeah. you finding your inspiration? Uh, you sort of went from not wanting to get into the rave scene, but you took a U-turn and went back in time? It was sort of uh, sort of mm. ruralism, I suppose. You know, we, we would, I used to be a big collector of postcards of... I suppose the category would be called social history. So it'd be sort of turn-of-the-century village photographs. Um, there's the German photographer August Sander of the early 20th century who did beautiful portraits um, of, of working people, um, sort of folk scenes. That was a big inspiration. Um, a customer actually gave us this 1920s workwear catalogue, this company called Vince, that were based in London, and they were an old workwear manufacturer. And that was a great inspiration. So for mm. a few years, that was a sort of vibe we were slogging away at. Mm. Yeah, but it, 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 it absolutely hit the nail on the head. We did the high-back trousers, the ones with the braces that we still do, um, and it just seemed to strike a chord with, with a lot of people. I think they could also see that you couldn't get these clothes anymore. You, you probably still could, you, actually, you still could find second-hand stuff, sorry, vintage stuff, 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> but it became more and more difficult. And, you know, the overall jacket that we did, the high-back trousers, um, work shirt, what else did we do? I think we did do dungarees, didn't we, at one point? Um, and we just, we started off doing them in drill, cotton drill. And then we started to add fabrics like tweed, moleskin, corduroy. And then we did linen. And it's just started to get slightly bigger. I mean, but it did sort of also cross over with, in the sort of later 90s, with that sort of. You're familiar with the Chap magazine? Yes. Um, and the sort of tweed run. We sort of had a, a sort of glancing crossover with that, although I never felt entirely comfortable with it. I was, it, it was a similar sort of market we mm. were dealing with. And then the sort of mustachioed, bearded yeah. <laughs> vibe that came in sort of with that, I guess. Um, and I think we would have... People didn't really use the word vintage then for 
we, we were sort of, I think people would call us nostalgia. Yeah, that's like all, that was, yeah. That was the word that was used, wasn't it? Never use that word now. No one ever uses the word nostalgia. It used to drive us absolutely mad. If ever we got featured, and we did, we got so many. Because the other thing was, we bought a tin house. We lived in a tin house. And we divided the range into two. We had one called the tin house, the cotton workwear things. And then the other fabrics we called, we just had the name old town but um so oh I've lost me thread now <laughs> no pun intended nostalgia. oh nostalgia yes yeah, sorry sorry i was off on my hobby horse there um <laughs> oh god yeah the word nostalgia whatever like we were in the independent the telegraph literally every sunday supplement saturday supplement because at the there were absolutely crackers on doing these lifestyle features. I mean, I'm not complaining. My God, that formed the basis of our mail order list. Um, but every single one would be, um, oh, nostalgic, the way that you live, nostalgic. And we were just thinking, well, it's not nostalgic to us. To us, this is actually quite new. But it was always labelled as nostalgia. I mean, nostalgia has completely gone out of the remit now it is vintage heritage it's it's those sort of words but we were very much saddled with the nostalgia and actually still i find it a little bit uncomfortable when people i don't know they just will go on about i mean i remember people coming into the shop and saying well when would people have worn this a berry. Well, whenever to go out of the house, or as if it had a specific purpose, or I think maybe sometimes people just saw it as dressing up, whereas we were wearing it every single day. In fact, I remember bumping into a couple outside of our shop, not literally outside, but I mean in the street, say we were in the supermarket or whatever, and they were absolutely, they were literally, they went, Oh, you wear these clothes all the time then? It was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as if like we'd go home and get into a shell suit or something. But, you know, it's, basically that's just what you wear, you know. It wasn't dressing up as far as we were concerned. It was clothes, everyday clothes, which is what, still what they are. Could that have been why the intersect with the sort of chap magazine crowd felt a bit uncomfortable? Because clearly yes. those guys were dressing up. Yes. Yeah. The tweed run, all of that. We're never, in the end, that's why we stopped doing things like tweed, because we just thought, <laughs> well, sorry. not not enough's enough, but you know what I mean? You've got, you just thought, oh, yeah. Fine. But where we are in, in North Norfolk, there's a preserved steam railway, which is a beautiful thing. Um, but once a year, they have a weekend, which is like a 1940s weekend, where enthusiasts and the general public dress up in 40s clothes and go on the trains, parade around the town. And um, I, I find it excruciating. <laughs> I try, and, I try and get out of town for that weekend. <laughs> um, Do you have that sort that of thing, thing in Norway? That thing of dressing up. Right? Not really. No, not really. So the you don't celebrate World War II there? <laughs> <laughs> mm. It's big here. 
Yeah, I think Norwegians in general have pretty shitty memories of that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, oh, they're absolutely. It's become the biggest event on the North Norfolk Railway. I mean, they have tens of thousands of people turning up in various efforts yeah. but the 19... thing is I think if you wanted to wear like a 1940s suit that'd be brilliant if you were walking through the city of London or something but to go into this little enclave where everyone's sort of allowed to wear this fancy dress mm. anyway that's, anyway that's uh, by the yeah, bike. that's, that's <laughs> by the bike that's just that's a detour from nostalgia that um, is a, a huge thing now though with Goodwood and so forth yes I mean, oh I, I, exactly the amount sure. of times I've been asked to do Goodwood, I just I couldn't I just couldn't do it. I'd have thought if you made a little line of steam train operative uh, clothing, uh, <laughs> you could break it in and secure the pension. <laughs> yeah, they no don't want to spend money though. That's the other thing. <laughs> so, given that your clothes aren't nostalgic and aren't sort of heritage vintage. Yeah, what are they? <laughs> Come on. I mean, most people who look at them will, th and, and the layout of your website, the lettering and all this, I mean, it, it does hint at some bygone time. Well, I think as Will says on the, um, the way that you describe it on the website, you say there's a reference to the past. Yeah. Um... It's not trying to recreate the past. That is certainly not what we're trying to do. I'm not sure. I'm just quickly mentally going through the website thinking what might be construed as <laughs> nostalgic. <laughs> I mean, I know, don't future it's a, typeface. Um, it, all, it always completely <laughs> mystifies us. But I think I suppose when you look at what the majority of people wear, which is basically a version of sportswear, I think when people see proper cloth, cotton, or like you go to Amsterdam, you see people wearing clothes made out of cloth, like cotton, linen, you know. And it's not so much about sportswear, whereas here the predominance is sportswear. So by comparison... Say, like, if Will is on the train wearing a corduroy suit or a dresser, he will get asked where they should go on a platform because people will just <laughs> immediately think... <laughs> I'm staff. Yeah. He's staff. And yet the corduroy. uniforms... Well, do you know what I mean? But the, yeah. un the uniform... In fact, when we went to Palm, we went up to Newcastle at the weekend, there was something we were wearing, and you said, bet you anyone will get asked for directions wearing this. And I think it's... I don't know. It's just... I suppose it just triggers something in, in someone's mind that maybe they look a bit more, not authoritative, because you don't have to look authoritative. I don't know what, I, I don't know. It's intriguing. I think the whole thing about uh, what, the way that we've done it and how we've done it and why we do it is more to do with people's, uh, like anthropology, really. How, through the years, how our stuff has moved through different, when we first started and our main publicity we were getting was through our magazines like Country Living, The Telegraph. We had a very, very different sort of customer. The addresses were like the old rectory, Rose Cottage, 
honeysuckle laying and all of this sort of thing. That is completely finished now. You know, the postcodes are E9. Oh, actually, they're all moving to SE. SE, Crystal Palace, blah, blah, blah. It's just so interesting how it's, over the years, how it's changed. and But essentially, the garments haven't changed. It's, it, it's, it's, it's really intriguing. I think what's happened, I mean, I mean, we've been incredibly lucky to have been doing very similar things, I suppose, for 30 years. And we've been able to do that because fashion has been incredibly slow-moving in the last few years, with the exception of the increase in sportswear-inspired clothes um, and sort of technology-based mm. footwear and um, ubiquitous puffer jacket-type things. That, that's noticeable in the last couple of years, the increase in that. But that seems to be the only real major trend that, that I can discern in recent years. Sounds to me a bit like you were initially selling to more middle-class people who tend to name their houses, but have sort of over time moved into, dare I say, hipsters? I think it was where we were getting the, the, the Daily Telegraph and Country Living Yeah, uh, would be the the white gates and the old rectory type addresses. I still think mm. we've got, I still think we've got the, if you want to put the middle class thing on it, we, we still have those, but I think they're more, um, I don't know, it's sort of a bit more in the creative area rather than, um, oh, I don't know, I was going to say rather than, the retired colonel in his garden. There was some, the, you, but the there's been yes. Suppose, but I, I've had people in the shop, <laughs> yeah. and I just found it remarkable. I remember one Saturday there was a chap in the shop, very well spoken. I think he was a lawyer, and he was buying a pair of Vauxhall trousers. I think he was buying them in black moleskin. And there was a young lad in his twenties. He was buying exactly the same pair of trousers, and I just thought, my God, they are so different. So different. They are worlds apart. Their worlds would never, ever meet. And yet they can both wear those trousers and look absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. And it, I, I do, I mean, we do have a wide range of different types of people who can all wear. Well, you could say that about anything, I suppose. Well, I don't know if you can, actually. I mean, you normally get a group who will wear that style or I don't know but they clearly both saw an attractive property in these trousers yes. they were both yes. looking for something quality and recognized it so yes. it sort of transcended you, who they were yes, who, who they background. were and yes and you can make them look quite different what I love I what I, the thing I absolutely love is when we first started We've got people who came in those very early days, 30 years ago, and now their children buy the clothes or they wear the parents' clothes. But we've got quite a few who will be in their mid-20s, late-20s, and they wear the things, and so do their parents. And I, I just think it's brilliant. I mean, and... It's quite a. Um, it's quite a compliment, isn't it? Oh yeah, well that wouldn't. Yes, <laughs> it's remarkable because when we were young, younger, 
I mean, there's no way you'd wear the, the same thing. The generation gap was vast, wasn't it? Hmm. Very interesting. Well, you wouldn't uh, wear the same. When we were in our mid-twenties, well, any up to present, well, when, you were, when we were younger, there is absolutely no way you would have worn the same clothes as your parents. Not in a million years. I don't know yeah. how old you are, Nick, but would you? Would you have wore similar things to your parents? As time has passed, I am wearing more and more what my father wears. Right. And I think that also goes for a lot of what well, we call them hipsters, but um, young people who appreciate the sort of bygone times, the quality stuff, the heritage stuff. And they are. At some point, we all become our parents. Which was quite yes. a conversation killer. I think that go for any section of society that the generation gap just doesn't. It's not really there now. Um, even if you're you're a shell suit family, you, you're probably wearing the same shell suit as your as your parents. Um, I just think the generation gap's gone, um, which is great. <laughs> From the shirt in the box, you expanded the range. Yes. And I think yep. over time there's been a, a massive range. So, but you've sort of adhered to the making things to order. I think, haven't you? Yes. Yeah, we've stuck with that. Yeah. We yeah, are. I'm not even sure how that came about in the first place. I really don't know. I don't know. It wasn't like. I mean, you know, if you'd gone to the bank and said, "Can I borrow some money? I've got this idea. I'm going to do a range of clothes." Maybe, I mean, they would literally would have said, "On your bike. That is ridiculous." And I would have thought the same myself. I mean, it wasn't a business plan. It was just the way that it happened. Just we have, you know, the fabric swatches. You can have that in that fabric. You wait six weeks for it. Um, and it just seemed to work and, and still does. I mean, you know, we don't carry stock. So, I mean, apart from the, the waiting six to eight weeks, which I'd find excruciatingly long and painful, uh, it does seem an incredibly sensible way to run a business because you're not making oh, yeah. anything you won't sell. Yeah, it's marvellous. you actually get what they want within the well, range. Well, within reason, yeah. With yeah. the permutations, it's a, it's a very extensive range in all the, mm. the, the, the fabrics and colours. Thousands, the isn't it? There's, there's a lot of, of uh, permutations. Mm. Yeah. So, really, you were about 30 years earlier than everyone else in realising that this is the way clothes making has to be going forwards. Well, it was sort of forward-looking and also backward-looking. It was the way, <laughs> you know, things have always used to be made um, to uh, bespoke, I suppose, although it's a tricky word, that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, they would have been made as, as requested, wouldn't they, in the past? Yeah. Um, so it's sort of used, going a bit of that, but doing it a bit more of a modern way, I guess. But also I think what it provides, and more so these days, is people want an experience. That is part of it. It's an experience, which is why people will drive for miles to come and try something on. And, you know, it, it's not bespoken, it's not off the peg, it's sort of in between. But you are getting the attention. You know, it, it's like a oh, personal service sounds a bit weird, but, you know, rather than walking into a shop, you're completely ignored, you trail around, you wander out of the shop, and nobody 
says anything to you. You know, this, and that, which in a funny way, I think that's why the appointment system is working really well because it is your time in here to come and get yourself sorted out. Um, and it is about the experience, which... The, po the appointment system, is that something new or recent? Since COVID, since COVID, because we only want one person in the shop at a time. Well, not one, you know, or a couple, you know. We, we don't want loads of people coming through the shop at once. And also, to be honest, from our point of view, it, it works better in our the way that we can manage our time because for 30 years I have been a slave to the doorbell. The doorbell rings, I go downstairs or whoever happened to be working upstairs because when we're not downstairs serving somebody, you're upstairs pressing, buttoning, laundering, packing, doing all of that stuff. The thing about the doorbell system you don't know if you're going to be down there for five minutes or for two hours. You just never knew, which was quite interrupting. Um, so now you give someone an appointment. They've got, they have roughly an hour, an hour and a half. You have to be a bit, you know, sometimes people can't make a decision. <laughs> um, so you, you would allow an hour and a half for, for someone and then that's their time. And it just seems to work really well. Um, and that would not have come about. I know it sounds ridiculous, but that wouldn't have come about if COVID hadn't happened. Like I said, I'd rather it had happened in a different way. But we had to think on our feet, as everyone else did when that happened. I mean, the first week it happened when um, we were told, you can't leave the house, you can't, you know, other than doing your shopping. We thought, well, that's it finished and then it was well you can go to work ah oh, we thought fine because our machinists work from home so all they need to do is get the work back to us and we can carry on working which we did hmm. it made me realize that i didn't actually enjoy going into work at all so i haven't been to the office for two years now <laughs> really <laughs> will you ever only at special occasions, I think, if there's something special that occasions. is required. But for a party, that, <laughs> for a birthday party. Possibly. Now, I know you've been described as making working-class clothes for middle-class people. Oh, yeah, that, well, I thought that was brilliant, that. I thought it was the most brilliant description I'd ever heard. A customer of ours said that, yeah. yeah. Do you think that was perceptive or was it just a bit funny? Oh, at the time, it was absolutely spot on. It was back in the early days. It was um, a chap who, um, I'm sure you won't mind me saying it, Charles Samory Smith, who used to be the director of the Royal Academy. And he said to um, another chap, oh, you, you would love their clothes. They're working class clothes for middle class people. It is a good tagline, though. Yes, we love that one. Yeah. We love the Did you ever watch Mad Men? You know, I didn't watch Mad Men. Uh, that it was one. about the the advertising industry in Manhattan in the 50s and 60s. And the constant thing that Don Draper, the main character, was on about was this sort of what is the dream that he was selling to people? 
What's the, what is the prospect of happiness? And that's something that's absolutely fascinating <laughs> to me. Um, and and for the, in a, the small way that we do, to try and make that relevant in terms of the presentation, the slight shift in the vibe that I hope that we're offering. I think and it I, does make... I think that thing of happiness, though... Um, I think it, it uh, well, I would hope anyway that that's what our clothes do. And, you know, the feedback that you get when the people get that box and they open the box. Oh, there was a, there was a guy the other day, he ordered some things and um, he wanted to pay half and half. He said, oh, now I'm retired. Um, you know, got to be careful with the money or whatever. And I said, oh, because Will is retirement age next week um and i said oh it's not very nice is it and he goes the thing is he goes i don't feel old when i put your clothes on he said i just feel absolutely brilliant i thought oh how nice to think that they just made him feel great and that's basically all you want and yet you reject the concept of nostalgia don't you think he was harking is that back relevant to, harking back to younger days <laughs> Yes. Yes. Yeah. Maybe his own (laughs) nostalgia for an age he's never actually lived through, or not. (laughs) Yeah, but nostalgia to me just always seems like um, I don't know. It always just seems to be like stuck in the nineteen forties. You know, it just that's to me the the bit I don't like. It always just seems to be very much the nineteen forties. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, the, and the, vo- the vocabulary of the past is yeah. the visual vocabulary of the past is very limited for a lot of people. Um, so they wouldn't get any sort of nuance of 1890s or 1920s. They'd just see it all as the past. Well, the past is 1940s. Mm. That, mm. That's in Britain mm. anyway. I don't yeah. know. What it's people like. have got a terrible um, handle on history anyway. I mean, they're really, you know, they're pretty rubbish at. Like the, yeah, like you say, the twenties, the, the it's all lumped together into the nineteen forties. Unless Peaky Blinders comes along. Oh my <laughs> God! Do not mention Peaky Blinders. Get out! Get out! I've never, I've never seen Peaky Blinders, but, Blind- but I knew it was a bad move when I got on a bus one day and I was wearing a cap, and the driver said, "Been watching Peaky Blinders." <laughs> <laughs> They have done wonders for the cap industry and associated <laughs> stuff. Yeah, we, well, we do a cap, but it's not in. It's not the sort of what is it, what's it called, Baker Boy cap or something. Oh yeah. So we get people coming in. Oh, it's not the right sort. Oh, of it's, cap. Not, it's not the right sort of cap. It's not yeah. the Peaky Blinders yeah. cap, which I'm just absolutely over the moon about. Do you find that TV series tend to bring in customers? Uh, Gardening shows too. <laughs> well, of course, we've got you know the, the Don, <laughs> who buys our things and has done for many years. Um, yeah, his name is mentioned. I would say every other day, if not every day. Wow. Yeah. We owe him a big drink, don't we? We owe him a very big drink. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I, the question is either. Um, I bet he wears them. Does he wear them? I know he wears them because they'll have Googled it. Um, uh, but then the fourth one is the wife who wants the husband to look like him. Ooh. And he and he doesn't want to. 
So he quite reluctantly will climb into a pair of high-rise trousers, <laughs> looking really miserable. <laughs> but the wife wants him to look like that. Anyway. I think if the wife fancies a celebrity gardener, he's as all to gain by, uh, by dressing up as one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Our picture's frozen on here. I don't know if that makes any difference to you. It's, maybe uh, maybe we're still animated. Maybe it, we've died. <laughs> it's all good here. I can hear you. All I right. can see you, and uh, all it's right. all fine. Uh, you could try just moving your mouse or something to see if it will lighten up. No? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. that's okay. That's all right. Because um, um, I see a lot of other TV series, uh, say the Yorkshire Vets, I mean, they must be doing wonders for tweeds and uh, knitwear, and uh, yeah, you don't have any sort of... Would, no, I mean, we we do do costumes for – we ne we never do anything for the TV. I don't know why. Um, we tend to do things for opera and theatre. Um, I can't think of anything. No, no one's ever come in and said, can I look like the bloke out of Call the Midwife? Thank <laughs> God. <laughs> or um, can you think of – No. Uh... <laughs> I'm just looking at Will. I'm just looking at Will in his unity suit, which is just reminding me. We we introduced the unity suit to try and get away from that um, the tweedy element, didn't we? That was the one thing that we thought that that's going to break the well, mold. Yeah. I mean, sort as of, as well as the sort of folk, which it has. I've always been quite interested in modern design and early modern design, primitive modernism. I really like. And so the unity suit was um, our answer to that, really. Yeah. And it's a two-piece, almost, well, of looking like a, a one-piece, but more versatile. Um, and that's been very successful for us. Yeah, really successful. The um, Labour and Weight sell that, and they do really well selling that in the Navy drill um, in Japan. They really like it, don't they? Yeah. Because the Unity suit does have a sort of slightly Asian, Chinese, Japanese vibe to it. Yes, there is that. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't intentional, I don't think, was it? Yeah, or just... sort of Italian 1920s futurism. Mm. Again, back to, the, back to the sort of constructivism as well. The early, early modernism yeah. was a thing. It just so happened to coincide with the rebirth of the boiler suit. Yeah. So people come in and they go, oh, you do a boiler suit. I say, no, it's actually a two-piece. It's, it's actually better than a boiler suit because you haven't got the, the toilet issues, <laughs> which is true. And the thing yeah. about a boiler suit is the body length, they never work. So they're either far too short or they're far too long. Is that something you can take care of when making it? Well, no, because of different people's heights. But the thing with the unity suit is... It naturally... <laughs> because you just tuck the top in, pull the trousers in, it looks like an all-in-one oh. without the attendant problems. You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned, Will, something looking purposeful, urban lumberjacks of recent years. Well, yeah, I think that the, with the, the workwear thing of the last few years, um, it's got to be something to do with the way that people work these days, which is 
pretty well looking at computer screens, I would have thought. Um, yeah. So that thing of like the, the urban lumberjack or the, the, the drill or denim, the Carhartt workwear, mm. to make it look like you're actually someone who gets got dirt under their fingernails um, rather than sitting in an office. And that's, that, that's the dream. You know, that's, that's the, the fantasy, isn't it? I'm not sure it's the real fantasy because if you're sitting working in front of a screen all day, drinking your lattes and you're mm. texting your chums and whatever, not having to get dirty, but you still fancy that chore jacket. And they seem to be selling by the thousands. Mm. I, I can't really work out why. Well, I think it's because people imagine themselves doing a job. Good. Well, the, the, Self-image is is of someone who does something visibly yeah. functional and utilitarian. Well, this the recent thing of um, when when we when we first moved to Norwich and we would get people coming in the shop, men in particular, who would maybe worked in the city of London, burnt out at quite a young age, they made a lot of money. Their dream, absolute dream, was to move somewhere rural, make a boat, do a boat building course, a thatching, you know, all of these rural, they're never going to do it. I mean, they might, they might have done a course, but they were never, ever going to turn into a thatcher. It, you just knew it. You just, it was just this, and it's, and it's a bit like that now. Is, um, is there a, that book, Norwegian Wood, big in Norway, where it's just a, a book about how to stack wood, basically. Um, well, you should mention it because he's a friend of mine. Oh, <laughs> he's oh, very well from his book. It's a beautiful yeah. book. Yeah, Will's got it. I thought you were going to say you'd written it. <laughs> no. I've got it for Will a few Christmases but that, ago. That obviously ties in with the same vibe, don't wouldn't you say? It is that authentic, olden-style, real stuff. Yeah, using your hands, getting dirty. Whereas, like, there aren't those jobs out there. So people just wear the clothes and they sit at home and they write a novel or they do research or they do a PhD or they all the while dreaming of being not the boat builder now. That is completely gone by the by. Now it's um, bread making, beer making, that sort of thing, isn't yeah. it? It's, and the blokes who do those real dirty jobs are wearing high vis vests, really, isn't it? That's their. Yeah. That's the clothes for them. Mm. Mm. That's what I mean. It's so. The guys doing the really dirty jobs are the guys who never really aspired to working in the city either. They always knew that they would be working in oh, those jobs. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. But that's what's fascinating. I can't imagine coming from the city after 20 years there of sitting on my arse and having to build boats or actually lift heavy stuff for a living and not a good living at that. No, I know, but it is just that sort of dream. And we would we would get it all the time. And that's linked in with the Don Draper madmen. What, you know, the, the, the pursuit of happiness. And you would... Literally, endlessly, throughout the summer, you would get couples coming into the shop. Oh, we've just been on the beach at Holcombe and we live in Hackney and we want to move. And 
You know, it's, I mean, everyone does it. Everyone, literally everyone does it. Everyone's dreaming about another life. Everyone's at it. It's, be, it, it's become more so through over the last couple of years as well. We do it. You did it. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> it is, we it do is, it all the time. It, it, is, it is pretending. It's a bit like, you know, this the thing of visible mending, um, where it's like conspicuous um, thrift. And, and it's a virtue. It's it's this fantasy you have of yourself, mm. isn't it? Mm. Um, God, we sound cynical. Well, <laughs> hang on, I'm allowed to. I'm 66. Yeah, you're allowed to. <laughs> you're getting your pension next week. <laughs> it's interesting to hear another point of view on the matter of visible mending because it has become oh. a huge thing now where you won't mm. almost rejoice in that your garment has got a floor and then you have to beautify that floor so that mm. others see that you have done such a task yes it's mm. virtue signaling i think it's, it's called isn't mm. it yeah it should just be called darning at one point <laughs> <laughs> still is in our house <laughs> but but on the other hand it is good to take care of your stuff but you should just shouldn't do it in a way that's sort of obvious or blatant well, is that it exactly turn it into elevate it into this sort of, I don't know, into something that it's just repairing. It's repairing. Plain and simple, it's repairing. Um, but it seems to have been elevated to some sort of status. I'm thinking the the sort of most well-known exponent of this must be Prince Charles in his uh, much-repaired wax jacket. Oh, oh I haven't seen that. It's an old John Partridge jacket that's been repaired every which way and looks like a total patchwork. But when people see mm. it, they just go crazy. And he's such a great guy because he's repaired his jacket so often. Yeah. Well, that is the thing that the aristocracy, they, they, they pride themselves they didn't buy their own clothes. They could just wear their parents' old tweed jackets. Mm. Um, and and you could, if you're privileged, you can afford to be shabby. <laughs> Hmm. And it's and it's it seems a good thing, isn't it? You can drive around in your dirty Range Rover with your jumper with lots of holes in it, and absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a girl that came to our shop, and she was a, a brewery heiress, hmm. and she had a very threadbare jumper on, but hmm. she could carry it off because she was privileged, I suppose. Very impressive. Whereas, if you hadn't been privileged, you'd have been embarrassed by it. Yeah, you would. You, would, you would mm. just wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. You would be spending a lot of money on a label. To, you know, that's the way it goes. But isn't that was it? the thing when, when we were kids. Like, um, this is the early seventies, and you know, the grammar school boys would have the long hair and the Neil Young patched jeans, whereas the the other kids they would be the the skinheads and they'd aspire to a crombie coat. Ben Sherman, button-down collar shirts, stay-pressed trousers, to look as smart as possible. Mm. Um, whereas it's part of that sort of middle class, wanted to be sort of look a bit more loose, I suppose. <laughs> Wanting to look like whatever you weren't, really. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's about aspiration. But aspiration uh, both upwards and downwards, in a yes, way. Yes, yes, indeed. Absolutely, yeah. Which I guess would have also gone for the Blitz scene in the beginning of the 80s, where 
kids would come from all over the country, not necessarily from any sort of posh background, but no, they, sort they of they flare up in this glamorous scene. From industrial areas or, or deep suburban yeah, areas. It, yeah, yeah. If, if you lived in the suburbs, that was a great draw, wasn't it? That's Because, I mean, I, you know, where I'm from was deep, deeply, deeply dull, so dull. And, but that, that's the thing that made you want to get out and do something. You just had to. And the Blitz thing, it was a similar thing. People were, a lot of people were from the suburbs, weren't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much. It makes you... So that's the sort of creative environment that punk was born yeah, out of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The kids from the suburbs. Hairdressers and art students. Mm-hmm. It's strange to think how creative the youthful subcultures were in those days because, oh. I mean, this the sort of new romantic scene was hot on the heels of punk. Yes, mm. yes, indeed. Mm. Nowadays, what is there? There isn't. That's what, yeah, that's what we, well, I hope there is. I really do. I, but I, I, can't, I can't see it. But then, you know, it's not our, we're old. But even so, we're old, but I don't think we're stupid. And we, you know, we, we go out, we see. Ugh. Yeah, but we haven't really got any in on influencer culture, have we? we don't really. No, really. but we know people who've got children in their early 20s who... I don't know. They don't seem to be into anything particularly. I think a lot of it know. is Jap- Japanese comics these days, or and endlessly recycling the old subcultures. So people become punks, or they'll become mods, or but it's just really just rehashing the old rehashing, yeah, old ones, yeah, yeah. But we haven't but, got children, so we don't know. But I mean, obviously, we've got friends who have got children. So. Yeah, so you're not totally out of touch. <laughs> we're not we're completely out of touch. And we do go out. <laughs> well, we, we've just been up to Newcastle for the weekend because that's where mum and dad live. And um, that's always an eye-opener. Mind you, it was quite subdued, wasn't it? It was quite, yeah. It was quite yeah. subdued up there. Normally, it's, you know, it's full-on party central. But um, it was actually quite subdued. Didn't. But every but everyone up there follows the crowd anyway. You would never ever see anything that was out on a limb or uh, it, it just. It's does. party city, but it's not. It's not a creative place. No, it just wouldn't happen. It's just everybody looks identical. Um, I don't know where you'd go these days to find people who. Uh, I don't know who had. To, I don't know. I can't think of a. A way of explaining it. You know, like when you were younger. It's, you not, it's probably just not the vocabulary of the young these no, days. No, 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 you're right, actually. Yeah, it's not. No. I think the internet changed a lot of uh, yes, what we saw before. Pe- people don't have to gather now. They can just commune online. I mean, so many of these things, it's back to this. all these things being fashionable. And you sort of just know that this is just going to be a sort of flash of the pan, spur of the moment thing that's going to be talk of the town for just a mm. while now mm. and then people are on to something else like the guys mm. moving from boat building to craft beer to yeah. sourdough bread absolutely mm. yeah. probably got a whole 
load of them wondering what the next thing they're going to get into is. Yeah. Probably and the crafting their own knives or something. Oh, well, yep. they've done that, haven't they? Um, the whittling spoon. Spoon, wooden spoon whittling. Spoon. But, I mean, the sourdough bread thing. I mean, there's a few people up here who've, who've gone into it big time and then they stop doing it because it's such hard work getting up in the middle of the night. You know, I mean, it sells, but for what? £3.50 a loaf? I mean, it is flipping hard work. All of those crafty things are. I think when people, the dream, once they sort of get into it, and then the dream suddenly, you know, slightly, mm, it's not that great. And I think that seems to happen all the time. It's, it's quite difficult for people to to stick with it. But I think that is absolutely across the board, people sticking with something. Um, doesn't seem to... That doesn't seem to be the way these days. But also, us being um, sort of in our 60s, we've been around an awful long time, and you notice... You see trends coming and going mm. over a very long period. Um, whereas when you're young, you don't... Everything just happens in the immediate, doesn't it? Um, but you, you'll sort of notice trends like, and it's pretty obvious stuff, but um, like the way that clothes have become less important and the body has become more important over the last couple of decades uh, with tattoos, piercings, that sort of thing. Fitness. Um, and, fit, and fitness, yes. Yes, the body is way more important mm. than... Um, I don't know why, because there's so many clothes available now mm. compared with when we were young. There was so little around. Um, and it's, it'd be hard for young people to, to believe just how little there was in the, in the average city. Um, and, and now the, the total opposite is yeah. true. And very, very throwaway. I mean, everything's just so... Ugh, I mean, it's just got a shelf life of what? A few minutes before it gets binned, which is not well, really. I sound like an old Methuselah here. <laughs> um, uh, I am. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> go on. Hmm. No, you are making... No, oh, that was it. But you are making things to last, aren't you? I mean, you're we doing do. your bit here to make we do. things that we genuinely do. Yeah. live on. Yeah, and people do. I mean, oh, one of the ideas we had, which is not coming to fruition um, for various reasons, but one of the ideas we had for our 30 years, I was we were going to do, <laughs> this was Will's idea, very good idea, oh, product, product recall. And I made a list of about 30 or 40 customers who I knew for a fact would have very old garments. And we were going to get, recall those and photograph them. And just the passing of time, just to show how beautifully worn these garments were. Oh, and it just became so complicated. And then we thought, well, what's the application going to be? We put something on Instagram. For the amount of work that we, it would have been to do it, and then it lasts for seconds, and then somebody's on to the next thing. So what we've decided to do in the end is a very good friend of ours, her husband, um, who is no longer um, alive, she has got some clothes of his. He was Polish, 
and they are so beautifully worn and faded and loved. And anyway, we're going to do a little film with her talking about his clothes and the very final outfit, which was very poignant. He was buried in one of our corduroy suits. And I just remember her saying, oh, she said it was, it was awful because I saw him in the coffin and all she could think was, they've put a crease down the front of his trousers. He would never have worn them with a crease in his trousers. <laughs> she wasn't saying that in a mournful way. She was saying it just in a, in a key, by the, by the way. But anyway, so we're going to do a film around her and these garments, which that just sums up our stuff, how they get worn and worn and worn and the buttons fall off and they might get relegated to gardening wear and repaired. Might and get mended. Might get Even. mended, <laughs> but not with a contrasting colour. Um, and, yeah, because when, I, when sometimes people come into the shop, they come into the shop all the time with really old stuff on. You know, they've had them for like 15, 20 plus years. That's what I would say is sustainable. They are. I just want to, to interject. I mean, why not get people to photograph themselves in their really old clothes? Just put out a... Because I think that would look Instagram. really random. I just think it would look too yeah. random. Okay. It would be free, though, and no work. It would, but we had an idea for doing it in this really good location. Yeah. It, it's just so atmospheric. And, oh, it just ended up... It would either be... It would either turn into a vanity project, because if we did a printed thing... It would be quite expensive, so you'd have to sell it. And you think, oh, who wants to, who's going to want to buy that? And I don't know. The idea just suddenly seemed to sort of seem less appealing the more we thought about it. But we have got these lovely things of Katie's. But promotion for us now has, has got to be in sort of three-minute Well, you know Instagram what it's like. Films. You know what it's like. It's sort of doing any, anything printed, just... Isn't possible these days, is it? And that's how we started off well, you doing do printed catalogues and yeah. sending them out. Um, it's just phenomenally expensive printed printed matter. And, well, it's and, more the postage. The postage, the postage um, is ridiculous. So, yeah, it's just down to um, the Instagram, really, isn't it? Mm. Which we do quite half-heartedly. I mean. I was utterly charmed by the little films you've been putting out. Yeah, they have been. They seem to have worked because it's, I think because it's not pretending. You know, that's us. That's the way that it is. It's not, we never go through it. We just go, oh, let's do this. Or, you know what I mean? You just do it on the spot. And it does seem quite natural. Um, and, yeah, people do seem to. And that all came because of COVID. Because you thought, well, this is our shop window now. You know, nobody's coming to halt. Um, and we'd never really gone on about how we do actually make the stuff ourselves here. Um, I mean, that little one that we did right at the beginning of Will putting on a pocket, I'd never actually seen him do that before because I'll be off doing something else. It was absolutely amazing putting that top stitch in on the pocket. And I think 
I mean, at, at the uh, workshop, the toilets upstairs. So quite often, people want to use the toilet. They come upstairs, they see that you're actually working there. I mean, they're just absolutely fascinated. You just don't see a working environment these days. You just don't see it. Well, this is part of the thing today, isn't it? With the the huge fashion brands and their outlets, that the clothes have come com- become completely abstracted from where they start, where they mm. where they're created, where they're made. And I think that's one of the huge well the things that makes brands like yours so interesting is that you can actually connect with that. You know who's making them, where they're made. I mean mm. there's a whole another level of interest there. Mm. Yeah. And we're not making it up. You know, like a few years ago there was the whole um made in England or British made and people started putting those awful labels in, Union Jack labels. Everyone seemed to sort of jump on that one. Do you remember? Maybe you Yeah, the timing was a bit off there with the whole Brexit thing at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So I think us doing those films, it's, I mean, just showing people that is how we do it. It's quite authentic. It's not... We're not making up a, a story. We're not making up a backstory to try and sell the stuff. That is how we do it. But you do, when someone needs to use the upstairs toilet, you do sort of have a little <laughs> secret lamp or something so Will knows that he has to sit down and <laughs> start to be making stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Quick. <laughs> I, I ran into that a couple of years ago. We were staying in the Cotswolds and there was talk of the village pub and there were – Asian guests who apparently quizzed the place we were staying, whether the people in the pub went home to their houses at night because they thought they were actors sort of reenacting a British pub scene. Really? Which just shows how abstracted it all is that it can't be a British pub with regular people there. It has to be someone who's paid to be there and make it look like they're (laughs) reading (laughs) the paper and drinking. I'd like that job. (laughs) That would do me. Uh, back to the that you're making it there people can see it and all that and also the sustainability bit which you briefly touched on marie um do you get people asking more now about where your fabrics come from where your buttons come from not really no i mean i think maybe people do know now They, they i think they totally know I think anyone who's made the journey to come to us must know about our background. That's what's brought them in the first place. Um, so a few people will say, oh, do, they'll say, do all of your fabrics come from England? No. I mean, that is just not possible. Um, woolens, yes. Um, cottons, no. They're important. Irish linens. So. Irish linen, Yes. Um, our shirtings come from Italy, from a small mill there. Um, but no, you, you you do what you can. You just you get what you can from this country, um, and obviously you want good quality. We've never used mixers. We've always used cotton, hundred percent cotton, wool, linen, and it's it's limited. I mean, it is limited what you can get. And over the years, you know, the cotton drill, there might have been five or six companies. There's now two. And one of them, we've had to 
persuade them to just do this particular quality, the stout twill that we use, that they just do for us because nobody else buys it. Everything else they sell is polyester. And there's another company who we use, and they do one cotton, everything else, and I mean everything, and they do a lot of materials, all mixes. So, it's, it, I mean, you know, it's, it's a shrinking market. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> which, is why, which is why we launched, which we had, why we launched the garments, but that's another story. <laughs> it is interesting what you touched upon there, though, because there is a lot of talk about this make it British and using oh. British stuff. And then I'm thinking that, well, I mean, everything British isn't necessarily great. You hear about sweatshops in Birmingham and so forth. So made in Britain doesn't actually mean all that much. It must be more important that you actually get the best fabrics available from where they are available. Yeah. And, I mean, even say what they are. So if you say it's Italian shirt fabric. Yeah, I think we do. We do say that, don't we? Yeah. 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 I think that obsession with made in Britain, I think mm. that was part of that early 2000s identity crisis that Britain went through that sort of ended up ultimately with ended up with Brexit. Mm. Um, and I think that sort of looking, looking back to a slightly retro feel <laughs> was that sort of questioning... British identity, that the Tweed people and ourselves worked out in the way that we did, and other people worked it out through Brexit. But there was that, that, that sort of vacuum at the heart of Britishness that mm. people were struggling to mm. claw their way into having some meaning for them, and, and they've certainly got it with Brexit, mm. I'm afraid. <laughs> And that seems to have blown over, that sort of obsession with Made in Britain seems to have blown over since since then, I have to say. Yes, I've, I don't know if it's such, I don't know, I don't know. You don't have to seem to hear quite as much about it, but maybe that's because Mary Porter's isn't on the telly at the moment. Mm. Has the interest in the Tweed guys also blown over? I would have thought so, don't you? I, I, I couldn't swear to it. But does, does the Tweed run cycle ride still happen? I don't know. Or well, it Goodwood has revival. Goodwood happens. Tweed run happens. Yeah. Uh, Chapman is still going. Hmm. Uh, of course, Peaky Blinders has given a bit of a surge. Yeah. And there was the was it the England captain trainer guy in his waistcoats? Oh yes. back waistcoats briefly. Yeah. Oh yes, 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 yes. Gareth um, Southgate. Okay, yeah. But the wrong yeah, waistcoats. Oh, mm. yes. I thought they were in Newcastle. Yeah. Was it the ones with... <laughs> did it have lapels on it? <laughs> did it? I don't know. <laughs> there was something a bit funny about mm. it, wasn't there? Yeah. Mm. Made in England. Union Jack labels. Ended up with Brexit. Ended up with Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> ended up with oh. Brexit, which has been an absolute disaster for sending stuff to Europe, I can tell you. I mean, my... Ugh, it literally... It has killed our... Yeah, I, I still send stuff to Norway because it's no different, and Switzerland because it's no different, obviously Japan, but Denmark, Sweden, Germany, France. I mean, it is a complete and utter no-go area. 
because you cannot tell the customer what they're going to have to pay in a tariff and who's going to buy something when they don't know what they're going to have to be. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Absolutely. And so it's same actually because Labour and Weir, who we sell to, they have stopped sending stuff as well to Europe because of exactly the same reason. I bought my tin house trousers from Labour and Weight many years oh, ago. Oh, yes. What, when I was a size or two smaller. Oh. <laughs> so oh. Don't, get onto that touch. Don't get onto that touchy subject, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting, though, when you were mentioning the various countries you send to now, or you have been selling to. Do you think people in the various countries see a different aspect of what you do? Very interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, mm, it's, communication's always slightly problematical with Japan. Um, but it works out in the end, doesn't it? <clears throat> but I never know what they're exactly what they're seeing. No, well you could say that about anybody. Well, I think just Yeah, but with a northern European sensibility you, you can pretty well rely that you're seeing you on the same ground, aren't you? Well, I think they're just quite similar to people in England. Yeah. But we did, we did got used a good to sense send... of humour, generally, I find. Yeah, we did used to send a lot of stuff, but uh, it's just, it is just too difficult. I mean, I sent a couple of things to Belgium. They were returned to me, the customer... I said, well, I'm just going to give you a refund. Oh, no, please, please send them. I've, I've, he'd had things before. I said, okay, I'll, I'll send them again. That was the beginning of December, and he received them last week with a tariff on one of the parcels of 130 euros, and I don't even know what the other one was. Wow. And I said, well, if you want to order some more things, you're going to have to come to the shop because it's actually cheaper than doing it this way. Yeah. So it's just off-putting. What I was thinking was that someone in Germany and someone in Japan, say, yes. must be must be viewing what you do quite Different. differently. Because yes, the Japanese, yes. I know they are very keen on the Britishness and the yes. nostalgic Britishness. Yes, yes. But the Germans, I think, are very much more into that workwear, denim type of industrial look. Hmm. I'm not and I, really sure what they. Well, I'm, very, I'm always very pleased when we used to send stuff to Holland because I've been so inspired by mm. by low countries workwear. Yeah, <laughs> that I'm just giving it back to them in yeah. a way, and I, I, I'm really pleased to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, we did used to have. Well, we still do. I mean, I have still have some customers there that I will still send things to, partly because I know what their sizes are. If it's a new customer and you don't know what their size is, you've got the added complication of if it doesn't fit and they want to return it, then I'm going to have to pay it. It, it just makes it too complicated. Whereas I have got some people who are existing customers perfectly happy. They know they're going to have to pay a tariff. They just say, I'll do it. I don't care. Fair enough. Fair enough. But, I mean, it hasn't made things easy. And I'm sure, you know, everyone would say the same. Because people, first-time customers actually do have to stop by the shop. Now they and do, be yes. Measured. Yeah, because I used to try and 
it's it's just made it so much easier because I used to try and work that out over the phone, which it, it, it's just increasingly difficult. People trying to work out their sizes. The main problem is people working out their actual size from the size that they are wearing, which can be four sizes different. And that becomes problematic because basically you're just delivering people bad news all the time. Because if you've got a man, <laughs> well, let's just say a man <laughs> who is wearing a 32, 34 Levi's, I would put £100 down to say that he actually measures 38 or 40. That is wow. generally the way it goes. Just as well you're not hearing it because I'll be getting the tape measure out. Um, <laughs> that is generally the way. And then you make the trousers, the trousers come back, and it was it was becoming more like that through COVID um, because everything was mail order. So oh, this is why we, we've introduced this new. And people are absolutely fine about it because everybody knows the whole problem with vanity sizing. Everybody gets it. They say, oh, I know I'm not that size, but that's what I wear. And also, if trousers are sitting quite low, which they do, you know, below a tummy or whatever, um, and our trousers are quite high, there's a problem. Yeah. And we don't want to get that many returns. I don't want to get any returns. Um, but actually, touch wood... The appointment thing for new customers seems to be working. Existing customers, fine, as long as they've stayed the, as long as they've stayed the same shape. <sighs> Who has? <laughs> Sigh. Well, same here. Me yeah. too. Oh God! I would, yeah. <laughs> you have to start sewing stretchy bits into the sides so that they can sort of <laughs> grow with you. <laughs> That is a terrible. I'm sure other companies must have the same problem, though. They must. Have, well, the thing is, what most what most people do, they will order two or three sizes, keep the one that fits, return the others. I mean, we couldn't do that. It, we we we'd be crippled if we were making three pairs of trousers for one person and they return two of them, and they've been made for them. I mean, we just could not handle that sort of returns. But it's fine if you're a mail-order company. You've just got shelves and shelves full of sizes. And, of course, people now expect free shipping both ways. Oh, they do, but not with all town, no. No. No, but you're right, they do. They, that, that is part of the deal these days. I mean, literally, doesn't somebody go to the house and collect them? I mean, I'm, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. It's part of the authenticity, though, where you see what things actually cost and that actually someone makes it and you actually have to pay to have it yeah. posted to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. This, this business of mail order from the big places now, that's another level of abstraction. You order, yep, I will just order all the sizes. They'll be here next day. Maybe I don't like any. Send them back. It hasn't cost me anything. Yeah. It's unrealistic. I know. I know. It's a bit like this thing that I was listening to on a podcast the other day about, um, oh, no, it wasn't. It was on BBC Sounds about this, um, you know, this new delivery 
thing where it's delivered to you in 10 minutes. Have you heard of oh, that? Food delivery. Food delivery. Um, okay, food how can they even make it in 10 minutes, Not let alone get well, on their bike? No, it's just it's sort of groceries. It's, it's groceries. It's okay. groceries. And it's called um, Gorilla. Gorillas. Gorilla. Gorilla. I think there's a few different companies. This has become a big thing in London. In fact, we'll, we saw one of the warehouses when we were down there. And the whole thing is you get it delivered in 10 minutes. It's absolutely crackers. I mean, it's like somebody cannot be bothered to walk down and buy a toilet roll, a pint of milk and a bag of pasta or something. It, I think it's basic items that you can have delivered. And that's the whole thing. It's delivered to your door in 10 minutes. Obviously, you have to pay for it, the delivery. Um, but I just think the world's gone mad, Nick. <laughs> and this is where our age comes to show. <laughs> Railing against all the new my, stuff. Yeah, my, <laughs> the, the grocer's shop from the Peaky Blinders days. That's what we need. <laughs> Oh, there was something to be said for that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter gomology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. I mean, is there anything you'd like to mention sort of in closing? Well, yes, because I said I wouldn't be able to talk for an hour, but it seems like we've talked for t- over two hours. No, no, it always gets it. a Is bit it? chatty oh, and right. nice. Um, I don't think so, Nick, other than it'd be lovely to see you in Norfolk. And we yeah. Could, we could go out and have fun when you come yeah. over. That'd be lovely. No upcoming sales, I suppose, at Old Town? No? We don't really do sales. Well, we, we, we halved the range in the summer. We went from 30-odd styles down to 17, and we had a big cull, and I had a sale, which was brilliant. We got rid of all these extra samples that we didn't need anymore. But because we don't, make, we don't have any stock, I've got nothing to get rid of. I mean, the only thing that we carry is the fabric. That's where our money's tied up, in the material, because we always have all of the fabric. Um but we don't actually have any garments. I'm, to be honest, I'm quite surprised nobody else has done a simple... Maybe they have, maybe they have. I mean, who knows? I'm surprised maybe a bigger company hasn't done a similar thing to eliminate having to have this seasonal... I mean, if I was to ever go into Selfridges and you see all of that stuff marked down half pr- trying to get rid of it before the next lot of stuff comes in. It, it just makes me feel physically sick. I mean, I just think, wow. I get that feeling when I see certain British companies who basically make the same thing every year. At the end of the season, they're knocking out all the surplus at 70% discount, only to bring back but- a few months later the exact same products at oh, full really? retail. Oh, ah. Not nothing different. No, they're just I the mean, same. They've been, making, they've been making the same duffel coats for sixty years, mm. and it's completely baffling. Yeah, <laughs> but but if I was going of, to buy one, I'd of course wait until the spring and then yeah. buy one. I just want to ask ask you this one: Are you familiar with this thing of renting clothing that um, 
there's a couple of, like Moss Bros, haven't they started doing this thing where you subscribe? You subscribe to, on a monthly basis, and they'll, you can choose various items to rent. To rent. Are you familiar with this? this I thing? have I seen mention of it, but over here, I think it's only for women so far. But again, I, it's not something I think would be very interesting for me. Mm. Um, well, I mean, I, children's I would, clothes in Britain do that. Well, that makes sense because they're growing. Yes, that's, that's what that it's the, about. Yeah, that's that the was the angle. Yeah. yeah. Humans of a certain age tend not to grow at least less less rapidly. <laughs> <laughs> not in height, anyway. <laughs> well, certainly that. But uh, I have to admit, I like actually having stuff and it's my own and I've selected it and yeah, I don't want to give it back. No, rather than give it back and then somebody else has it after you've had it. But I don't I know. You're very much in that fashion cycle thing where you want to show new things all the time. I mean, that goes back to the signalling, doesn't it? It's wealth signalling. You want to show you've got that handbag, you've got that mm. thing or whatever. Yes. And then next week you've got something else. Next week again. I don't Can know you if see it's more... that changing? That whole, you know, the seasonal, that thing of which we, thank God, don't have to do because we do all the fabrics all year round. It's not a seasonal range. It's there. You either have it then or you have it later or whenever you want it. But that thing of shop, the thing is, if, I suppose if shops were to get out of that thing of seasonality and all of that, I don't know. Do they just fail? Do they just close down? You know, because how do they keep the whole thing turning over? Yeah. Well, that's where the two different views on sort of sustainability are. You've got it from the consumer's side and you've got it from the business shareholders need a profit side. So if H&M were going to become sustainable overnight, well, they could just lock up all their shops and say, that's it. And they'd be fine. That's Mm. not going to happen. Because no, they have no. all these shareholders who want their want their cash, mm. and I yeah, think with no. the, with the rental business, will it succeed? I mean, for some people, yes, it will, because you'll find people who are willing to pay more just to have that constant flow of new stuff they can show off. Mm. I mean, for them, it's probably brilliant. But there mm. is a certain segment of of people, I think. Mm. I can see why Moss Boss did it because the formal where thing was well, collapsed completely during COVID, didn't it? The formal yes. wear higher. Yes, yes. Um, so I, I guess that's why they did it. But wouldn't it just be an extension of what they've been doing for wedding suits and that like? Because, I mean, buying a suit for a wedding is a big waste of money. Oh, um, Nick. Oh, that's a very good cue. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. What I was going to say was, we do an absolutely brilliant trade in wedding things because people don't want to buy a suit, wear it once, or hire a Mossbrough suit. They want something that they're going to wear over and over and over again. And honestly, we do so well with that because, I mean, when I say wedding suit, I mean, they'll buy a drill suit. You know, it's a cotton drill suit or... They might buy a linen suit. But the good thing is these days they have these things called... Um, groomsmen. Groomsmen. So you've got a line-up of like... Suits. Yeah, you've got a line-up <laughs> of like seven lads in their Brilliant. drill suits or 
honestly, is such a gap in the market for that. Such a gap. I mean, people don't want to look like Elton John, you know, with that brocade, Nero collar, you know, gone are the days. And the gap in the market for that is massive. We do so many. I find that incredibly cheering to hear because <laughs> so these, these sort of one-use suits where, oh, yeah. where someone has decided the, th- the theme of the wedding is purple, so everyone has to have a purple suit or something. <laughs> oh, God, you're never going to use it again yeah, no, unless you get married again and have the same theme. Mind you, I'm saying that. Though I, I know the shop. Uh, it's called Favourbrook. Do you remember that they, they were in um, – I mean, this that they might be doing, and I'm sure they are the most phenomenal business in brocade jackets and waistcoats. They were in German Street, and they had a shop in one of those little arcades, and that is exactly what they used to do. And I think it was thanks to Elton John that their business completely took off. But the people that we, <laughs> the people that we get, the young lads who, I mean, there was a young couple last week. He's having he's he's having the the Stanley jacket, straight edge waistcoat, Vauxhall trousers. He's having it in black linen, with a cream Italian cotton collarless shirt. And then his groomsman, he's going to let them choose the fabric. It's going to be seven Monty Don alikes. <laughs> <Not> alikes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it is cheering, as you say, because, like you said, they're going to have that outfit, and that's theirs to keep, rather than something that they're going to bin because they're never going to wear it again. Oh, it sounds wonderful. It's an excellent idea. Okay, well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Nice to chat. For what it has for us. Thank, Thank you, for, you. Thank you for asking us. Thanks for getting in touch, indeed. Yeah. And bye-bye for now. If you'd like to check out my guest further there's links in the show notes there's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee which is perfectly optional i'm just pleased you're listening if you'd like to get in touch suggest a guest just let me know what you think it's uh welldressedad at gmail.com you can follow me on instagram as welldressedad so until next week bye bye